today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. But when Christ came, that's why Paul refers to Christ in, in Corinthians as our Passover lamb. This is why John the Baptist, when he was about to baptize Christ, said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So Christ comes, dies on a cross, is the perfect sacrifice, sheds His blood. So no longer do we have to approach God through the shed blood of an animal, as imperfect and temporary as that was, to provide temporary atonement. It's been replaced and fulfilled by the perfect sacrifice and perfect atonement of Jesus Christ. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Hebrews. Did you know that Jesus Christ is your perfect Passover lamb? As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches you that Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. In Old Testament times, people would have to sacrifice an animal in order to receive atonement from God for their sins. Pastor Gary teaches you that Jesus is your perfect sacrifice and final atonement. There is no amount of works that can earn you right standing before God. Simply believe and place your trust in Jesus. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. These are some of the most controversial verses in the Bible. There's been great debate about how to interpret these particular verses. And so as I read verses 4, 5, and 6, let's follow along together and then we'll do our best to dig out these verses together. So in verse 4, Hebrews 6 verse 4, it says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming of the age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, again, some of the most difficult verses in the Bible. There have been a lot of debates, discussions, disagreements, divisions, church splits over verses like these. So I'm going to do the best I can not to cause a church split. But there are four ways to interpret these particular verses. Before I actually, and I mentioned these last week just very quickly at the conclusion of our study, but before I look at these four different ways one by one, I want to first point out something in terms of the pronoun shift that the writer of Hebrews makes from the first few verses to these verses and then back again. So if you'll notice with me in the first three verses, the the writer of Hebrews says, let us, therefore let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ, go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting we 
will do so. So do you see in the first three verses, it's us, it's we. And then it changes here in verse 4, where he says it is impossible for those. And he shifts from us and we to those and they. He says in verse 4, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. And then skip down to verse 9, just a little bit further in verse 9, he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. So he starts out first three verses saying us and we, then he shifts between verses 4 and 6 to talk about those and they, and then he comes back in verse 9 to talk about we again. So this may or may not, this could cloud the interpretation or this could assist in understanding kind of the context of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. And by the way, this kind of writing style was something that Paul employed in his letter to the Thessalonians. I'll just read, you don't need to turn there, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul's talking about some of the end time events. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, he says, but you brothers, talking to the church at Thessalonica, but you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like others. And then he shifts in his, in his conversation. He says, us and we, and he says, now, we don't want to be like others. And the rest of the passage says, who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So in other words, this is not the only place in the Bible where you see this writing style employed, where we're talking about us and we, and then it shifts to this kind of a distant, you know, we're separating ourselves from another group of people, and and those are the those-they people. And so Paul uses the same writing style as I just read there in 1 Thessalonians 5, talking about the end times, the return of Christ. He said, you know, this day shouldn't surprise us, but it's going to surprise others because they get drunk at night, they carouse, they do other things, they're not prepared, but we should be prepared for it. So that's important here in Hebrews chapter 6 because, first of all, it appears that as the writer of Hebrews writes here about these verses, that he's not necessarily talking directly to his readers, to the recipients of this letter, that he's in effect saying, listen, this is something that could potentially happen to you, but I'm not writing in a way to shame you or warn you, particularly because you're doing something wrong, but to warn you because there are others, the they, the those who don't get what I'm saying, you better learn from them because potentially this could affect you. So he's writing somewhat indirectly, but he's not writing directly. Now, again, that might help or that might confuse the interpretation here, but as we go through it, I think it might help you a little bit. So here we go. Four possible ways to interpret these verses, because these verses look heavy, don't they? It's talking about, hey, people who are once enlightened, but if they, if they fall away, you know, it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. So, you know, in, in most conversations I have with Christians, at some point in a Christian's life, people begin to wonder, you know, are they in or, or on the outside? You know, am I good to go or not? Am I really saved or not? How do I know I'm really saved? 
Was I saved, but I could potentially lose my salvation? Or I'm saved and I'm good to go. It doesn't really matter what I do because it's all good to go and I was predestined anyway. So, you know, people have all the, am I right? People have all the kinds of questions like this. It's like, you know, I want to have assurance, but I want to have a healthy assurance. I want to have a biblical assurance. I don't want to presume anything, but at the same time, I don't want to be afraid of the security of my salvation. I, I, want to, I want to have that assurance. So a lot of people wrestle with this at some point in the course of their Christian life. And so when you read verses like this, it, it will rattle that cage a little bit and make people feel like, okay, here we go. You know, I'm reading these verses and maybe I'm one of these who, who, who fell away. Maybe I'm going to fall away. Maybe I am falling away, you know? So, and so it becomes this almost a panic passage. I don't want it to be that way. I want us to look at this, try to understand the context, appreciate what he's saying, take heed, you know, understand what applies to us, but also interpret it within its context. So I'm going to give you the four common ways that this is interpreted often. And the first common way that this passage is interpreted are by those who would simply say that, that this passage really is about those who profess to be Christians, but aren't really saved. So you know, that's the way that some will take comfort and say, I don't need to worry about falling away because I know that I'm really saved. This is really written about people who, who play like they're Christians, act like they're Christians, but they aren't really saved. They never really had a relationship with the Lord. And so, you know, these verses don't really apply. Well, the problem with that is that when you, with this particular interpretation, is when you look at the description that the writer of Hebrews uses to describe the people he's talking about, you know, words like, I mean, it's a whole string of words, right? In verse four, like it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened. They've been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. If they fall away, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So when you look at that description, pretty hard to make the argument that these people aren't really saved. I mean, these people are saved. They're enlightened. They're enlightened. He uses that word. In other words, they've come into the light. They've stepped out of darkness. They've come into the light. They've tasted the heavenly gift. Well, what's the heavenly gift? Well, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it is by grace are you saved through faith and this not of yourselves, not of works. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. What's the gift of God? Even believing faith for salvation. So salvation itself, the gift of God. So whoever he's talking about here, they've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift, meaning salvation. He says also here, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. In other words, they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and he says, they've tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the coming age. Now, some who believe that this passage only refers to people who aren't really saved, they, they, they think they're Christians, but they're not really saved, will we'll look at the way the word taste is used twice in these verses and say, this is their argument. See, they haven't really digested the whole salvation thing. They've only tasted it. So they're not really saved. They've only really tasted like they, you know, just swished it around in their mouth and they spit it out, but they didn't really ingest the whole thing. You know, like, like I, you know, like I didn't really inhale kind of a thing, right? Remember that? All right. You really inhaled. But anyhow, if you go back a couple of chapters to chapter two, verse nine, in chapter two, verse nine, just because, you know, the Bible is always the best commentary on the Bible in chapter two, verse nine. 
the writer says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See the word taste there? Now question, did Jesus fully, completely, totally die? Yeah. So the word taste doesn't mean, well, you know, he, he played around with death, but he didn't really die. Okay. So best commentary in the Bible is the Bible. So now you go back here to Hebrews chapter six, the word taste means fully experienced. So the argument that these people only tasted, they only swished it around their mouth, they spit it out, they didn't really get saved. That's, that's nonsense. These people clearly are defined as enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of this coming age. So these, these people are Christians. The, the second way to interpret this passage is hypothetically. In other words, there are some who read these verses and, and say that the writer of Hebrews is only giving a hypothetical scenario. And it's the idea that, that if a Christian could lose his or her salvation, but he can't, and so, but if he could, there would be no possibility of being saved. And so, that's what some say, but, but the writer's thought process doesn't support this. You know, he doesn't waste time arguing a hypothetical situation. It is simply illogical to think that the writer would insert such a, such a severe warning. I mean, this is a severe warning, and it doesn't make sense. The writer of Hebrews, I'm just going to insert this severe warning, even though it's all hypothetical and isn't really going to happen. I mean, that, that just doesn't make any sense. And the people who interpret it this way hinge on one word. It's the word if. They're in verse 6, if they fall away. So see, the word if is in there as if to suggest that they're not really going to. This is all hypothetical. But again, the problem with this whole interpretation is when you look at the original Greek language, the word if is not even in the original text. So it's pretty difficult to hinge a whole interpretation on a word that doesn't even exist in the original language, okay? But this is one way that some people will also interpret this passage. The third way that some people will interpret this passage is that it's not really about salvation, but it's a warning about the lack of Christian maturity. In other words, because whoever wrote Hebrews in the first three verses talks about Going on to maturity, we can't lay again these elementary truths, and you guys need to be beyond this. He said back in chapter 5, you guys should have been teachers by now, but instead, somebody's still you know, giving you pablum, they're giving you milk, they're not even giving you solid food. So some interpret that what he's saying here is that the strong warning is against those who aren't going on to maturity. That, that he's, that he's you know, challenging them about you know, being in a backslidden state. You know, backslide, we use that term, we throw it around. It actually is a a word that is used in the Bible. Most often it is used in the book of Jeremiah. And to be in a backslidden state, basically it means that someone knows the Lord, but but they have, you know, just kind of turned their backs on him and they, you know, return to the world. And so they know him, but they don't really have fellowship with him. And so they're they're living in a a backslidden state. And that, that word is in the Bible. However, the language, again, of these particular verses, verses four through six, I mean, it's pretty severe. He starts out here by saying, it is impossible. It's impossible. So we can debate, you know, who exactly he's talking about, but it's impossible for those who, and then he describes them, and then verse six, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. So when you, when you put that together, I mean, clearly the writer's saying something's impossible here. And in particular, he's saying it's impossible to be brought back to repentance. Well, 
the truth is that the Bible speaks about, for example, in Proverbs 24, 16, that though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. But the wicked are brought down to calamity. You know, people will stumble. I will stumble. You will stumble in your walk with the Lord at different times. We are frail people. We are sometimes, you know, we give in to our temptations. Uh, That doesn't mean that all of a sudden now you're written out and there's no way for you to repent and get back in. In fact, in Hosea chapter 14, verse 4, God says that I love those who have backslidden and I will heal their waywardness. And so, you know, God has compassion for people who are in a backslidden state, that they're not in right fellowship with him, that they know of him, but they're not really living for him. And he has great compassion. The Bible speaks about people who are in that wayward, backslidden state. You can still repent and return to the Lord. So if this is speaking about those who are backslidden, it doesn't make sense because this is impossible to be restored. And so I'm not sure that this, this is the right interpretation either. So we're left with the fourth one. And this may or may not be the right interpretation either. And this is, this is where it gets, you know, a little dicey with people in terms of, you know, could it possibly be saying this? But it, there's a possibility that this is speaking of apostasy, that is a Christian leaving his or her salvation. Now, before I explain all that, I want to again remind you of some verses. If you go back to chapter 2, I took you through a quick survey of these verses last week, but I just want to remind us again from chapter 2. In verse 1, you're going to notice this theme throughout the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So underline that phrase, drift away. And then go to chapter 3 and verse 12, where the writer says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Okay, so you have drift away in chapter 2. You have turn away in chapter 3. If you go further to chapter 10, in chapter 10, look at verse uh, 35. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. So you see in chapter 2, you have drift away. And in chapter 3, you have turn away. Here in chapter 10, you have shrink back. And then in our passage in chapter 6, if you want to go back to chapter 6 now, Uh, you have fall away in verse 6 of chapter 6. So it's pretty clear that, again, we're going to try to unpack this more carefully, but there's a common thread sewn throughout this letter, that there's a warning here about not drifting away, falling away, turning away, and shrinking back. Now, again, we have to remember the, the audience and the context. The book is called Hebrews. Because the writer is writing to Jewish believers. These are Jewish people, Hebrews, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah. And they are being confronted with a lot of change. 
uh, I don't know what your background might be, but if you, if you have a church background, if you were raised, say, in a mainline church, there might be a few things that you, when you started reading your Bible more carefully, began to realize oh, some of those things are maybe more tradition than really Scripture, and so you begin to realize and you begin to separate what is truth from what is tradition, okay? Others of you had no church background at all. You came to faith in Christ maybe later in your life. You weren't raised in the church. And so you don't really have, you know, any kind of religious traditions to undo because you didn't have any to begin with. But you have to remember for the Jewish people, I mean, your entire Old Testament was everything that they lived by. I mean, the law and, and the sacrifices and the feasts and the festivals and, and the, the dietary aspects of things and, and all these various ordinances. Now, again, you know, listen... The Bible, in general, is the moral code of God. But there are some aspects of the Old Testament that can be separated between the moral code, the ceremonial code, and the dietary code. The moral code is always intact and is never replaced. But the ceremonial and the dietary aspects of the law were intended to point people to Christ, ultimately, and those things were ultimately fulfilled in Christ. You know, when I, when I have a Passover meal with a Jewish believer, I mean, they are in the best place of all places because they have the opportunity to see how Christ is fulfilled in the Passover meal and how Passover was pointing to Christ. But as a Jewish believer, one can experience the fullness of that whole story and have a Passover meal with a whole greater enlightened understanding of what the whole thing means, okay? But for a Jew to begin to recognize that how they get to God is radically and completely different than how they were used to getting to God, meaning the sacrificial system, slaying of an animal, the shedding of blood, the whole, the whole dragging your lamb to, to the temple, all this stuff, going through all the rites and rituals. And now you're told, listen, all those things just pointed to Christ. You don't have to do those things anymore. I mean, this is, this is completely turning the world upside down. So it's no wonder that when some Jews came to faith in Christ, that they were having some challenges being able to be fully devoted to this whole new approach to God. And for this reason, the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, don't fall back on, on the old system. The old system was put in place temporarily to provide temporary righteousness through the shedding of the blood of an animal. But when Christ came, that's why Paul refers to Christ in, in Corinthians as our Passover lamb. This is why John the Baptist, when he was about to baptize Christ, said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So Christ comes, dies on a cross, is the perfect sacrifice, sheds his blood. So no longer do we have to approach God through the shed blood of an animal, as imperfect and temporary as that was to provide temporary atonement. It's been replaced and fulfilled filled by the perfect sacrifice and perfect atonement of Jesus Christ. But this, this is radically different for a Jewish mind. The book of Hebrews challenges all believers of Jesus to continue to embrace Him as the only hope of salvation. Too often we can find ourselves trying to keep up our faith by adding traditions back in. No one is saved because of Jesus and something else. It's only Jesus. 
there's still nothing you or anyone else can do to ensure forgiveness of sin. Jesus took care of it once and for all. And through faith in that fact, you can begin to grow and flourish in God's plan for you, falling more in love with your Savior every day. We're honored you spent time with us here today studying the book of Hebrews on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to more editions of Pastor Gary Hamrick's teachings in Hebrews, you can do so by visiting our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Or if you're someone frequently on the go, download our mobile app to take these messages along for the ride. What a great way to keep God's Word close at hand, no matter where this life takes you. We'd love to meet you, too. So if you're in the area, come join us this Sunday at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary will lead us in another study of the Bible, and we always include time for worship and fellowship. You'll find service times, directions, and all the additional information you need at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today for Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know